Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greerhawk. I'm your co-host, Josh Nefflin. And joining us this week, we have... Yes, answering your call for women uh, to come on <laughs> to talk about these episodes. A straight white man, Mike Knoll. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> uh, Hard to schedule anybody during the pandemic. <laughs> it is. We'll make it up to you listeners with another Sarah Hallwell episode sometime. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us this week for our second brood spawn of our Bride of Monster Bracket. I do hate that I said that. It's, it's canon now, I'm sorry. Just like Pause Nation. Uh, this week we have our Samara Weaving Power Hour, consisting of 2017's The Babysitter, as well as 2019's Ready or Not. We picked these because Samara Weaving is a really fun actress who's having a good time, and these are both just really fun, recent horror flicks. Also, we decided on this before the sequel to The Babysitter came out, mm-hmm. so otherwise we might have done another double feature, but... Yeah. Also, fortuitously, we have someone who has spent a long time with Ready or Not and has even made a sequel to it. Yeah, so over on Equalizer's podcast that I do with my friend and co-host Madison Jones, we took Ready or Not and we made a sequel. Uh, you can find it on our feed. Uh, it'll be Ready or Not to colon tag your it, and you can check it out there. Okay. No spoilers. Awesome. There's a long discussion over um, <clears throat> when it is and it's not like how far down the arm it is okay to cut off someone's body. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I guess. Should probably put in content warning for both of these films for like massive amounts of gore. Lots of gore. Most of it, apart from one bit, is kind of like the fun wacky gore that one goes to sl- movies about slashers for. Is that the one where Bella Thorne doesn't understand how boobs work? Well, there's that. But no, I'm mostly talking about the hand thing. Oh, you're talking about Ready or Not then. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But why don't we go ahead and start off with the babysitter. 12-year-old Cole is constantly bullied at school and in his neighborhood. Cole's only friends are the girl who lives across the street and his babysitter, B. During one of his parents' weekend trips, Cole and B spend the day having fun. But as Cole's bedtime approaches, B has to persuade him to go to bed. After allowing him a shot of alcohol, which Cole secretly pours out, B tucks him in. But soon after, Cole hears other people arrive at his house. Max, Allison, John, Sonia, and Samuel. They begin a game of truth or dare, and Cole watches from the second floor. Then things take a dark turn as B kills Samuel and collects his blood with the help of the others. They need it for a satanic ritual. Cole runs to his room and calls 911, but hears B and the rest of the cults approaching and feigns being asleep as they carefully draw his blood as well, the blood of an innocent. The cult leaves to continue the ritual, and Cole begins his escape attempt only to be caught by B. Cole passes out from the blood loss and wakes up tied to a chair downstairs. The cult question him to see if he saw anything, and Cole almost succeeds until the police arrive. Once the cops enter, all hell breaks loose as Cole fights for his life as the cult tries to tie up loose ends. Throughout the night, Cole begins facing his fears and manages to survive until it's just him and B. Cole manages to take the demonic book she needs for the ritual and set it on fire. While distracted, Cole then steals his neighbor's car and crashes it into the house, pinning B. The two have a final conversation before Cole leaves her to die while he waits for the police. When his parents arrive to the chaos, Cole's only response to them is that he no longer needs a babysitter. I still hate the way that last line is delivered. I said when we watched the movie that it really felt like he was going to just pull a pair of sunglasses out of nowhere and put them on as he walked off frame the way he delivered that line and not like a more frightened or at least confident like, I don't need a babysitter anymore. I don't need a babysitter anymore. To be fair, with the tone of the film, it makes a lot of sense why the line was delivered the way it yeah, was. Yeah, no, I get it totally why they made that decision. I just was like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. But before we get too deep into the plot of the movie, it's still technically the end of Harvest season, so got anything going in the garden? Yeah, I was able to find a few uh, 
reviews here on Rotten Tomatoes for both of the films. Well, most of the ones for The Babysitter, much like Ready or Not, were people who didn't understand what kind of film they were signing up for. So it was hard to find a number. But this one is from Wallace S., who gave us a half star. This movie existing could be the plot to its own horror film. Anyone who watches it will be cursed with nightmares about how painfully unfunny it is. They tried to bring back old tropes in a sarcastic way, but just because you are self-aware doesn't mean you are forgiven for the pain and suffering you put me and thousands of other movie watchers through. (laughs) Anyone who enjoys this flick is either horny or is a carrier infecting others by telling them they should watch this film while knowing full well that it is dangerous. If you found this movie funny or good, then I will pray for you. And this is coming from someone who doesn't mind the Minions movie. Please, for your own sake, do not watch this film, in quotes. In your review. This is your brain on cinema sense. <laughs> I will say, I will say, some of it is deeply painful. The like awkward interaction with Cole being an awkward child and weird stuff would be did make me write let the murder start in my notes. <laughs> See, I really enjoyed that because it I found Cole very relatable. <laughs> oh yeah. They did a good job of I mean I liked him this when we were watching it at one point. We started. To, we stopped to talk about the parents, and I basically was like, "Is this just the page master, but it's a cult instead?" And it is very similar, like to that painfully scared kind of Macaulay Culkin child. That made me go, "Yeah, it's like the page master, but if she was played by the guy from Home Alone." And then I realized, "Hey, <laughs> Jackson, we all know you're face blind." <laughs> so our next review comes from Johnny T, who gave this one star. Not engaging, poorly written, with a humor befitting a Disney show, and quite unoriginal. Doesn't stand up from the other horror films. Its ending was, not a spoiler, also quite weird and random. End of review. And I just love that he had to clarify, stating the ending of the movie is weird and random. was That's not a spoiler. <laughs> Huber can do a Disney show? Like, what Disney shows are they watching? Like, has that channel changed? I hope so. That would be great. I have one last review from Mitch H. He gave us a half star. My buddy Steve liked it, so you know it's bad. End of review. <laughs> I think we all have that friend. Oh, absolutely. I think I might be that friend. <laughs> I, do, I do want to put a call out, and I've not done this before on this show or usually with Tomatoes. Gimli M., if you're watching this, please contact me about what your personal beef is with Samara Weaving. I went through all of your reviews on Rotten Tomatoes where you say I've made no secret about my personal beef, and you've never explained what it was. So if you're listening, contact me <laughs> and let me know what your beef is because I put too much work into finding out, and I never did. <laughs> Minutely plus nice coming through old tomes. I bought Red Yarn to make a conspiracy board <laughs> to figure this out. Anyway, that's all of the reviews I have. Some weird stuff growing in the garden, as always. <laughs> this was one of those films, though, that did. A lot of people had either smart things to say or at least logical things to say. A lot of people illogically were like, this movie isn't smart or interesting or, fu- or original. I was kind of like, that's the point wasn't that it was original. <laughs> It is a loving, delightful send-up of the tropes that it's working with. It's not trying to necessarily be new. It's trying to have fun with itself. Yeah, like, this is a movie for people who love movies and are steeped in movies. There are so many small little references and shout-outs to other film franchises. And I honestly love that, but I can understand someone not liking it, especially if they are not as well-watched. Well, and like Ready or Not, which, I mean, obviously we're going to talk about later, it is just a lot of people who, I guess, didn't understand what this movie was supposed to be, and they were, like you said, your brain on cinema sins. <laughs> like, everything has to be Citizen Kane or, like, prestige <laughs> entertainment. And it's like, no, like, people just wanted to, like, watch 
this kid escaped five teens who are trying to murder him for a blood sacrifice of the devil. Teens. <laughs> yeah, fam- the famous teen, Robbie Amell. <laughs> so actually, I do have a read on that. If you view this as being a somewhat like metaphorical thing where we're kind of seeing things through Cole's eyes, the idea that you know a senior as opposed to him being a freshman would look... 20 years older with with like pecs wider than Nebraska would make sense for like how he perceives the world. So Robbie Amell is here who has the delightful role as the protagonist's murderer slash mentor. <laughs> yeah. So maybe about two thirds of the way through the film, Cole is being chased by Max, played by Robbie Amell. And then when Max is about to like kill him because he's like got up, like lifted up by his neck, choking him. They hear someone out in front, and it's his neighborhood bully egging his house. And Max stops everything. It's like, you egg your house a lot? Sometimes. So what are you going to do about it? What? I said, are you going to let that little punk come onto your property, your family's property, and disrespect you like that? (laughs) And forces Cole to go confront his bully. Uh, He does not succeed. And that Max is upset by this is deeply funny to me. Also, a really weird bit because B had taught Cole to if she was going to fight him, basically to just kick him in the nuts. And so he does that. And there's an entire like 30 second bit where Robbie Amell is insisting, You missed my dick. <laughs> and then they even fight about whether or not he actually kicked his dick or not. Uh, of all of the cult members outside of B, I definitely think Max has the biggest personality. And I think his inclusion is one of the things that just kind of adds that extra little spice to the narrative. I really think that they had a draft of the script, then someone goes, wait, what if they wrote in the Max thing? Because they realized that was a really good idea. Mm-hmm. It definitely like, felt like someone like gleefully rewriting to fit that all in. I would agree with at least the rewrites. My take is maybe that they had them and somebody said, no, we need more of this. The rest of them, other than Allison... Sonia and John don't really have characteristics other than John gets bled on a lot all the time and no one would lend him a shirt. Mm-hmm. Like That's pretty much his characterization for the movie. Yeah. Sonia makes cookies. That's her thing. She's like, kind of goth. Yeah. like And they, the sequel, they, they flush those two out a little bit more. But this one, I feel, it feels like Max got more to do like in a rewrite like no give him more scenes and the other two got cut a little bit yeah it also doesn't help that john is like the first to die the movie makes you think that it's allison but she comes back later Mm -hmm. which does mean we have the whole black dude dies first thing happening well i guess apart from samuel yeah samuel doesn't matter he exists to to make allison more everything and then die like a sacrificial animal (laughs) then bella thorne's whole thing is that she's hot and dumb I'm sorry. I'm still... <laughs> I I cannot with Allison only because she gets shot in the boob and spends basically the rest of the movie talking about how she's going to have a deflated boob. That's not how boobs work? Probably not. I don't think so. <laughs> God, she's going to motorboat these, B. Allison here is a fantastic because she is just a ridiculous airhead mm-hmm. who doesn't think she's an airhead. Mm-hmm. whose dream job she talks about how hot she is her dream job is to be a journalist they flesh it out a bit more in the sequel but <laughs> right. it's mostly to be like a news anchor <laughs> yeah like and that makes sense like I thought the joke was gonna be that she fundamentally misunderstood like for journalism like she thought she had to be hot to be a journalist <laughs> so, I mean considering her worldview I'm pretty sure she thinks you have to be hot for any job a way to make her a stronger character would be to have her have two 
goals in life. Be incredibly hot, be a journalist. And these things are not at all related. They're just like, <laughs> he has two very strong, very disparate drives. And then Sonya is just kind of there to be creepy. Sonya is your like creepy goth chick. To, to be a lesser Erika Ishii. He blows up. Yeah, I will say, like, I feel like not enough time is spent with this kid being like, hmm, I'm just going to murder these people as well. I mean, don't get me wrong. If someone tries to murder you, you murder them right back. Totally valid. But he jumps from scared kid to murder kid pretty fast. (laughs) Going back to a point you made earlier, like how people just didn't get what this movie was trying to do. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that helps you understand where this movie is coming from, but you do have to be a little steeped in movie culture to get it. Throughout the film, there are a number of interjections of words on the screen, like almost comic book style, and they're all in these like 70s grindhouse style fonts. And looking at it from that, it is a really perfect update of the B-horror movies of that era, just Mm. kind of with some modern sensibilities. And I think that for the most part, it succeeds in being that. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I, I mean, it succeeds in being the movie it wants to be. Yeah. It's just that a lot of people... For whatever reason, we're in a time with like cinema sins and uh, TV tropes and all of that. It has become a science, quote unquote, of what a good movie is. And people use that paint by numbers. And The Babysitter does not meet up many of those requirements that people would say. So there's like, no, this sucks. It's unoriginal and bad. Yeah, The Babysitter does not care about your grading rubric. Yeah, exactly. And that's and I'm fine with that. Like, <laughs> yeah. But that's, we're in a time where, especially again with like Rotten Tomatoes, where everybody's wanting to be the next, you know, like Roger Ebert. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are trying to use this metric. They're using the film versus movie, except they've yeah. just removed the movie portion, yeah. so everything is put through the microscope of film. They literally have bits where the protagonist, B and C, go through lists of movies. They are literally B and C listers, making it well, making a B horror film. That's a series wrap on me. I'll see you <laughs> later, Jackson. I'll see you in hell. <laughs> there was some reviews I saw that I sort of agree with that. The movie did, to some extent, try to use movie references as a personality. B and C go through a whole thing of, like, what's your elite alien hunting team? And they, like, rank them off and why they would be. And it's a nice scene. Like, they have good chemistry. Uh, yeah. Smart Weaving and mm-hmm. the guy who plays Cole. But there are some points where they try to have them be, like, they, there's the scene where they're, like, mouthing along to a movie. Mm-hmm. Like an old western or whatever. And it's kind of like... Yeah, I mean, that's neat. These are good scenes, but that's not necessarily, like, a personality. It is fun, but also a lot of the references are kind of older. I feel like that there could have been stuff that is more recent in here to kind of spice things up. Like, I feel like this kid is probably going to be more into, like, the Marvels than into, like, yeah. old Westerns. And I don't know, because he doesn't have a lot, of a lot of friends his age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So most of the stuff that he's come across is either going to come from his parents or come from B. That's fair. And B might also be, like, older than she looks. A little unclear. Which I think, if they dug into that as a thing, that would have been a really good way to like give him more characteristic. He's kind of a bit out of time, as it were. Well, it's I mean, it's the problem people have talked about. Like Saved by the Bell is a similar issue where it's a it's a show set in like the eighties and nineties. The people running it are old men who have nostalgia from when they were teens in the fifties. So there's a lot of like fifties iconography and mm-hmm. stuff in Saved by the Bell. It's just a matter of it's people who were kids in the eighties mm-hmm. writing movies about kids. So their kids' reference points are eighties pop culture like most of the guys out there are like man i remember when i was a kid and i saw thor in theaters or whatever because they just don't have that reference point right although i think one of the strongest points mm-hmm. of the film is the dialogue between mm-hmm. cole and in the cult it's so fantastic and there's so many great one-liners i think 
one of my favorites is after Allison gets shot, <laughs> she shows, oh, what kind of dick shoots a girl in the boob? <laughs> and I just... Allison Open is also referred to as looking like Big Bird's side bitch. <laughs> Which, that's, um, that's a lot. It is, but John's not wrong. <laughs> God. Also, like, the, the running theme of Cole having read the Wikipedia summary for Mad Men at some point uh, towards the start of the film, and, and it becomes, like, a reference point towards the end of the movie? That's fun. No, what happened is his dad was watching Mad Men, wouldn't let him watch with him, and then he stayed up all night binging the entire series. There was There's a montage. Hours. There's not enough hours. Yeah, that's physically impossible. <laughs> you have to watch it on, like, 18 times speed. <laughs> That's right. Like four windows open, one with each in episode. Oh, that's fair. He was moving very quickly, so I guess maybe he does have flash powers, which, which is why probably a mouse is here. I didn't end up taking too many notes while we were watching, so I don't remember as many of the one-liners, but I, I legitimately love... Cole comes to after having, like, passed out from after the blood loss, and the first thing he says is... Why is he shirtless? And John is like... That's your first question? And legitimately, they're like, so Cole, what's up? He's like... Why isn't he wearing a shirt? Like, he will not let go of this. I love that legitimately. It's like, of all the things I've seen tonight, what the fuck is this about? <laughs> right. And that is a, a common thing that I love, is someone focusing on the wrong detail in a crisis. It's very funny to me. Crisis. <gasps> God damn it. <laughs> Cass Samara weaving his poison ivy on the oh. I mean, she has a look for Harley Quinn. That too. Sorry that we're... No, I'm not. <laughs> Blatantly, I'm not sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's fair. Also, um, speaking of things that I'm not sorry that I'm like, there's a bit when Samara Weaving is bending over to grab something, and I'm like, wow, I want her shoes. <laughs> I can't remember. Someone here was... me. <laughs> we're like, yeah, so that's what we're focusing on here. <laughs> Do we want to talk about Samara Weaving and sexualization? Sure, let's go ahead and go there. So... Because this is kind of emulating that 70s B-horror style and is also playing with some tropes around being attracted to the hot babysitter and the sexualization of women from the time. Like, there's a very blatant Fast Times at Richmond High reference. Yeah, she's wearing the bikini, right? Yeah. So throughout a good chunk of the first act of the film, B is very much hypersexualized, mm-hmm. And I'm not sure... We talked about how you can kind of view this film as hyper-real, as Cole's interpretations of things. And maybe that goes along with it a little bit, but it's not clear. Once the murder starts, that uh, rapidly goes away. Like, we have a lot less of that. (laughs) It comes back briefly when he and Melanie across the street are kissing, and they're playing straight-up porn jazz (laughs) during the scene where these two 12-year-olds are smooching. (laughs) That's an interesting point about it being from Cole's perspective. There is a bit where they're quote-unquote partying, and he's not looking at her, and she legitimately, in a dance, almost, she goes so low, she's almost sitting on the ground, swinging her hips and shaking her ass around. And I feel like it's like, that's not really from his perspective. (laughs) It's fair. Mm -hmm. I think that if this one was trying to go for that, it, didn't necessarily know how to telegraph it well enough. Like, I think if, if during that scene, like, Colin looking at her, she suddenly, like, doesn't have perfect hair. She's just, like, kind of shimmy. Yeah, like, like if she was, like, bad at dancing, that. like, well, she is not sexy when he's not looking. Mm-hmm. That could have been an interesting mm-hmm. way of, like, yeah. Cole's, the way he's saying things is skewed because he's in love with her. But she is continuously always sexy, even when he's not looking. Mm-hmm. But as Jackson said, that like, that part of B is pretty much dropped as soon as mm-hmm. things go to hell, which I do appreciate. Hey. Exactly. Like, there's a bit where the whole Robbie Amell, where he tries to kill him and then help him and then kill him, that scene takes like 
eight minutes and she is not on the screen at all and then he walks in the house to look for her and everything's cleaned up and he's whoa what happened it's all clear like yeah she, you haven't had eyes on her for like an hour dude <laughs> mm-hmm. she seems very efficient she's a babysitter yeah another problem and i know you had a problem with this while we were watching the movie mike um the very overt use of Chekhov's guns. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's Chekhov's I, arsenal. Yeah, I made a joke that the, the, that family needed to buy a safe for all of their Chekhov's guns. And Chekhov's open carry. I, I will give them credit for one thing. I basically loaded a Chekhov's gun with a second Chekhov's gun, <laughs> and I did that one got past me, which was the ramping a car. Mm-hmm. Like, they set up the, the house, and I was like, okay, that roof's coming back somehow. I thought he was going to hide under it or whatever. Yeah. The driving's going to come back. Okay, that tracks... They combined them in to put together a Chekhov's gun there where he ramped a car mm. with that. And I was like legitimately impressed with that. I was like, okay, you set that up, but like you snuck that one past me. Mm-hmm. The dad is like, hey, stop using that knife to fix your RC car. They then do a close-up of the knife being put in a dishwasher and closed. And it's like, yeah, oh, okay, we're never going to see that knife again. Yeah, and there are specifically a couple times where they go back and re-reference it. They show you in flashback. They show you them loading the gun again in flashback. <laughs> yeah, that's for uh, the scene with Cole running from Max where they flashback to be telling him how to win a fight against his bully. And then with the knife in the dishwasher. Well, well, with the knife in the dishwasher, they don't flash back to it before. But what they do is they flash to the parents talking about the knife in the dishwasher and the hotel room. Uh Are you the one that put the knife in the dishwasher? I think so. Can you not do that? It goes in the butcher block. Which is a bit of an awkward scene because they're both in like bathrooms sitting next to each other. And then Cole's mom has her hand underneath the covers and is very obviously jerking his dad off. But it's very, like, nonchalant about mm-hmm. the whole thing. Yeah. The parents are getting marriage therapy a thing of, like, being in a hotel, which I get. I get where they're going with that, but I think it's... I don't get why the parents are... It's fine. Um, they, I mean, they just needed a, a reason for them to not be there. And, yeah. Unlike Tolkien, they can't just say it's a necromancer. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but I feel like there could have been a point where, like, Cole calls the parents and like, hey, there's this thing happening. As the police don't help at all. So many things I want to talk about this movie in reference to the sequel. But we're not talking about that movie. I will say I do just really appreciate how much his parents do, like, love and oh, care yeah. about Cole. Oh, yeah. That's good. I think it would have been very easy to just have them be shitty parents. And they're not shitty. They just don't necessarily know how to deal with Cole's peculiarities. And that's what that you saying that while we were watching it was what led me to be like, oh, is this the page master? But it's a cult instead of like a magical book world. <laughs> there was also a bit where Cole like tossed out the arsenal and his mom calls him on it. And I'm like, good, thank you, movie. I appreciate this. Like, I appreciate this thing that we didn't necessarily need, but if we're gonna have it, we might as well have like it being checked. I agree, hundred percent. I'm laughing because that is in the middle of a scene in which. The mom is reeling from the fact that he said the word pussy in front of her. <laughs> and then they talk about, I know what pussy means. I also know it means, like, it's a vagina. Like, it is a wildly awkward scene. Yeah. And then at the end, like, then she calls out, and then she, he walks away, she goes, My God, he said pussy. It's just like... <laughs> the, the parents are great, and we get just enough of them. Mm-hmm. There's one thing I really dig that the movie does. It's kind of a weird thing to praise it for but there's a bit where during a game of truth or dare b is dare to like kiss everybody in the circle and she just like 
a quick peck to Max and then like a long makeout sesh with Bella and then uh, or Allison. Allison thank you yeah but then like when <clears> she gets to Sonya's respectful like kiss on the forehead kiss on the forehead thing I think that's a great way to demonstrate these characters different characters uh-huh. as it were a quick tour of who they are as people it was fun I like and that. then yeah. she licked John's face yeah <laughs> That is the kind of last hurrah for Samara Weaving's hypersexualization is mm-hmm. the very drawn out uh, makeout session between B and Allison. Mm-hmm. I thought like that might be part of that thing that Disney Channel stars all inevitably do. I think there was something else Bella Thorne did that she's now famous for that might have been a bigger breach from the Disney Channel paradigm. Yes, absolutely. However, that happened after this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We are aware and yeah, Bella Thorne sucks. <laughs> yes. Also, while we're here, write to all your local representatives, tell them to work on decriminalizing sex work. Does anyone have anything else for the babysitter? I don't think so. Okay. I mean, anything that I want to say is comparing it with things from Ready or Not. So let's talk about Ready or Not. <laughs> all right. You uh, want to give us a summary? Sure. Ready or Not is really fun, and it is better knowing little going in. So if you haven't seen it yet, pause here, go watch it, and come back. Grace is so excited to marry Alex LeDemas, the prodigal son of a rich gaming empire, despite his intimidating family at their ancestral mansion. However, before their wedding night, she learns that the family made a deal with the devil, Mr. LeBale, and has the tradition of playing a game whenever someone enters the family. Unfortunately, the game she draws is a murderous version of hide-and-go-seek. For the rest of the movie, it's kind of a fun romp through this big mansion while Alex tries to help Grace escape, and things go wrong for a lot of people, including the scary battle of reason on Helene and cocaine niece. Brother Daniel eventually winds up flipping and deciding enough is enough and tries to help Grace escape, uh, even though most of the family believes that if Grace doesn't die by sunrise, they will all be killed instead. However, Alex loses his family over Grace. At sunrise, Grace is still standing. I mean, the family has failed. For a moment, it seemed like it was all fine, and there was no actual deal with the devil to begin with, until the family burst into chunky salsa. Grace laughs as the uh, mansion burns around her. So, I have some reviews for this movie as well. Alex C. gave this five stars. This movie made my dad go insane. Thank you, Margot Robbie number two. In the review. Oh, that's unfair to Samara Weaving. 100%. I mean... I I understand the comparison. They look very similar. Mm -hmm. And if you really only know Margot Robbie from Harley Quinn, I can understand the acting style comparison. But... I think Margot Robbie has diversified her acting mm-hmm. stuff, whereas Samara Weaving's like, nope, this is what I want to do. <laughs> and I appreciate both of the styles. Mm-hmm. When Uncle Hugo got me into the acting business, he told me I was only allowed to do slashers. <laughs> I mean, she's real good at them. This next review, the person didn't have a name on their account, but they gave it two stars. It's just a gory version of Clue in a review. I mean, sort of. It definitely has a, like, what if Clue was slasher, but... By the end, there are a similar number of bodies. (laughs) I can understand that. Aesthetically, it doesn't share a lot with Clue. I'm not sure if style-wise it does. Like, Clue is much heavier on quippy dialogue and hijinks. Mm -hmm. And this is much more focused on slapstick and over-the-top gore for its humor. And saying fuck. (laughs) Which Clue noticeably lacks. (laughs) Good double feature, though. Like, they're both kind of a like mm-hmm. fun, eat-the-rich, survive-the-night kind of movie. Mm-hmm. Tony F. gave this movie half a star. Satanic movie. Do not watch it. In a review. <laughs> and the last review comes from Brad A., who gave us a half star. This was a bad movie. No idea why Rotten Tomatoes gave it an 88% score. It's bad. Very bad. There's no reason for this family to be doing any of this. They lack any motivation for the first half of the film until they make a blanket statement that they will all die if they don't kill her. 
the whole premise of the movie lacks motivation. And then you have the part where Grace uses <laughs> the very hand that was shot with a bullet to choke a man. She used both hands in that scene. There is no way she would be doing anything with a hand that took a bullet. Nothing. In your review. So like I was like, there's no motivation apart from if we don't do the thing, we will die. Also, them being shitty rich people. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of missed the point of this movie. There is a lot of the reviews on this one specifically. That's, there's no reason for them to be doing any of this. And I was like, no, they literally say, if we don't do this, we will die. I understand why there is some confusion, because you don't know that when they start the murder games. And I get some people are uncomfortable with that starting without having a reasonable motivation. And I'm sure plenty of them just tuned out at that point to write those reviews. <laughs> Well, but I feel like it's a pretty common thing that the villain in a movie will have a motivation that is unclear that we learn yeah. over time. And yes. And that's my point is to quote Futurama. You can't just have your characters announce how they feel. That makes me feel angry. It's like <laughs> the, the movie's not going to open with, so we're going to hunt her for sport and here's why. Just because they don't tell you their motivation until like 50 minutes in doesn't mean it's not there. Yeah. And that came up with a lot of reviews similar to that tied in the fact of like, why don't they just elope? They say why in the movie. There are rules. You can't just elope. You you have to have the wedding here and you have to play the fucking game. <sighs> it just seemed like a lot of people at that point had stopped actually listening to the movie and they were like, this is bad because they didn't explain it. There's a, a bit in Once Upon a Time where Cruel DeVille's evil plan is come to fruition and they're like, hey, Cruel DeVille, why have you done this evil thing? And he goes, well, you see, darling... I'm just a terrible person. That's just her whole motivation. Yeah. Yeah. This is not that. This is like a clear, logical, well-laid-out thing. Mm -hmm. the, the hand thing is legitimate. Yes, that's fair. I think that was kind of just to say, like, it's Slasher. Her hand is fine until, like, we're working on hit points, not, like, wound points here. We're also working on a movie that involves a deal with the devil. I'm not actually going to ding the movie points for that. her using that hand. Yeah, like, there's also a whole adrenaline to push past pain sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I thought the nerve shouldn't work, whatever. I can't believe you're bullying this man off the, on the internet <laughs> just is voicing an opinion. I think I do like about the, the motivation. It is very fun that we, the audience, and to certain extent the family, really don't know if the deal with the devil is real or bullshit. That is a good bit, and it means that the ending where they all go splody is more satisfying. Mm -hmm. A lot of people hated that. A lot of people wanted it to end up that it was all bullshit, and then it just been rich people being horrible. And, like, I get that. Personally, I enjoyed that. <laughs> it was yeah. actually real. I think that... Without that, there's no reason for Grace to survive, and it would be a downer ending if the family just lives and it's kind of sad, but Grace is still dead. I think this is a better release of tension that also allows Grace to escape the film. It is one of those films where you want the bad guys to be dead. Absolutely. And they actually, like, you are satisfied with their comeuppance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it wouldn't be fun if, if they died particularly painfully. They mm -hmm. die spectacularly, but pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. I will give the movie credit also for having brown-haired niece and both of her small children running out of the room before they explode. Yes. I mean, at least the kids, so there's not kid death. Yeah, it tracks the internal logic of the film that the kids do need to go explode, but I'm glad that they at least move them off-screen for that. This isn't quite the kind of movie that would go quite there. It's, right, exactly. Yeah. I think that like one of the <clears throat> interesting parts that it does have is that Cocaine Niece and Daniel both agree that like the kids don't deserve this, they're not bad people yet, but then they do learn that one of the kids has started to go down like the path of being part of the murder cult, and... Yes, he's the one who gets the shot off on Grace. Yeah, he's the most effective person in this family. Him and that fence. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a clever commentary on how you can love your kids, but also if you started indoctrinating them to the shitty stuff, they're going to participate in it too. Mm -hmm. 
This is the thing with the fence. A valid critique I've heard is that some people feel like the gore and uh, the, the elements of hurting grace are more lovingly rendered. Like the fence takes a while. And I know that the point is that it's like she's forcing her way through this and it's a slow process, but it does feel a little, not torture porn, but there are a few points where she gets like hurt and it's we spend a little bit more time than we should. Yeah. There is one scene that I will distinctly classify as torture porn and we've already alluded to it. And that is when she is in the stables, she is climbing out of the pit where they dump all the dead bodies. And at the top of the ladder, she sticks her hand through the nail that's at the very top. <laughs> And it is just gnarly. <laughs> yeah. I feel like they were going for that kind of over-the-top gore you get in these kind of things, but it was somehow not quite far enough over the top. There's that, and it's also, it's handled so differently than all of the other mm -hmm. gore in the film that is all comedic. Like, we get the help just getting <laughs> shot in the face with crossbows. Or crushed by a dumbwaiter. Yeah. Or on Helene just whacking one with a giant <laughs> fucking axe off screen. Yeah, there's a reason that this gets compared to Clue. Uh -huh. yeah. I will say, the running gag that they keep accidentally killing the help, as it were, mm -hmm. uh, is unfortunately very funny. I also love that either brown-haired niece or Fitch, her husband, are like, hey, if she dies, will that work? No! <laughs> We've been over this. <laughs> I also just love how incompetent they all they're are so at good. it. They're mm -hmm. so good. Like, at one point, one of the sons-in-law is watching a YouTube tutorial about how to use the crossbow. He's also the one who, on the toilet, Googles packs with the devil, real or bullshit. <laughs> um, I said this in the Equalizers episode, like, Grace is the protagonist. The family are the main characters. Mm -hmm. She doesn't really have a personality she doesn't have a family and she's that's what she wants yeah and i mean she's you know fierce because she is a survivor but like that's kind of all we get from her and everyone else has all these conversations they're much more fleshed out characters they're the ones with all the personality and i'm fine with that like, yeah we do get a small redemption arc for one of them which is really interesting and not something i was expecting mm -hmm. as we were getting into the crux of the film but daniel is an incredibly compelling character yeah like, I think this movie wouldn't work as well as it did if we didn't have characters like Daniel who are a little bit unsure of things. Yeah, like his unknown loyalties add so much to the film. Our first introduction to Daniel after the time skip, because we do see a very young Daniel mm -hmm. during another one of these hide-and-seek hunts. Alex and Grace are talking about Daniel and specifically how he is... Me and your alcoholic brother keep shitting on me. And so we start off with a very negative opinion of him, mm -hmm. and we see just how complex of a character he is, because sure, he's making the smallest attempts to help his family, but he comes across Grace and gives her a 30-second head start. It's like, this doesn't end well for you. I just don't want to be the one to serve you up. He literally came into the room for just a drink. The look on his face is legitimately when I'm at work and I find like something that somebody else has done and they did it wrong and it's now I'm gonna have to do it. And it's like I don't wanna. So that's why it's like I'm gonna give you a 10 second head start. And so kind of like one one thousand, two one thousand, two and a half one thousand. And as we get later into the film, he's having an argument with some of the others because they're questioning his loyalty. Like, no, like, if we die, we fucking deserve it. We're terrible people. <laughs> he's the only family member to die bef before the explosion scene. Oh, uh, the uh, mom. mom. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Also the mom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that scene in a bit. I'm very 
interested in like how he and Charity wound up together. Also, I love that her name is Charity. That's so funny to me. Like he's this kind of sad slob, and she's this cold, calculating. Has like a girl boss energy. Oh yeah, she is ruthless. She is totally down for all of this. But also, just as incompetent. There's a great bit where like she's like standing on the balcony, all pale and tragic, and and she sees Grace running through the uh, field, aims across, but like yeah, got this. Shoots. You hear like a bird scream sound effect. Dot MP3. <laughs> she's, oh. Very funny. Uh, she also 100% horny for Alec. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. For some reason. Not sure why. I also think it's really interesting how Daniel's redemption arc kind of mirrors Alex's descent into buying into his family's bullshit. Yeah. Dedemption arc. <laughs> yeah, dedemption. <laughs> Fine, I deserve it. <laughs> but... Alex is first trying to help Grace escape. He goes to the control room of the mansion where he can connect to all the video cameras and whatnot and is trying to lead her through the house to escape. And then he gets knocked out. And eventually when he meets back up with Grace, he realizes that after everything she's been through, she's not going to be with him. You won't be with me after this, will you? And then he just says, okay, Fuck it. And sides with his family. I think it's a good commentary on the way that a lot of shitty men look at women as possessions and their growth as people being driven by their desire to possess this person as opposed to because they're actually good people. Mm -hmm. About probably a year ago now, I was at home and I'd been hanging out with my parents and we we were all drunk. Mm -hmm. My dad went to bed and my mom was asleep on the couch. She told me, I'll watch whatever you want. So I just put on ready or not. She's like, I'll watch this and I'll go to bed. And at one point, she's like, oh, what's this? And I kind of told her. And she ended up watching the entire movie with me. But she kept doing commentary. And when we got to that scene where he's like, you're not going to be with me anymore, she just went, <laughs> And my mom is not a horror fan or a gore fan or anything like that. And I was like, the, I was texting Jackson the whole time. And the game kind of became, how much of this movie will my mom sit through? And she said the whole thing. And again, she said, weirdest freaking thing I've ever seen. <laughs> but she actually watched it and she was like engaged with it. And it was that point where Alex said that she just like gave this very derisive like laugh. How they foreshadow Alex's shift is also really interesting because the matriarch of the family, Anteline, makes a comment to Alex's dad about how... The- he is meant to lead this family, not run from it. He's hated our pact from the very start. He's the good son. Do you remember that? And why is he the only one of us who has ever seen Mr. LaBelle in his chair? But also, we only have her word about his word on that. And that was when he was a child. So, like, there's a lot of ambiguity there. That that unsureness plays into the film's strength. Mm -hmm. Also, while we're here, we cannot not talk about Aunt Helene. She's so good. Go ahead. I, I brought her up specifically so you could gush. So, Aunt Helene is played by Nikki Guadagni, who is kind of a recurring actress who's been in a lot of things, like one trust of the TV, or like minor character in Silent Hill, she was in Cube, that kind of thing. And she seems like a really sweet lady. Like, I was reading a lot of interviews with her, and she seems kind of, she's like got a lot of unsureness, a lot of imposter syndrome. Also does do some energy work, so I'd argue that she's a witch, so I'm glad that we have Aunt Helene played by a literal witch. That's great. She seems like a really nice grandma, who, this is her first acting role in like, a decade. And I really hope that she gets to do things after this because she's such a fun villain. She's clearly having the time of her life as this true believer cultist, this Disney villain who's escaped into the wild. Yeah, she has a presence. Mm-hmm. This is going to be her, like Christoph Waltz has come back when he did Inglorious Bastards. Exactly. Her rise to play Blofeld in the next James Bond movie. Mm-hmm. Another minor thing I love about this film is 
the family made their fortune on board games and they've spread out to like other gaming type things. Like they own a few sports teams, things like that. But there are definitely some stealthily hidden board game jokes. <laughs> like Fitch Bradley. Yeah, like Fitch Bradley, like who is very clearly meant to be of the Milton Bradleys. I'm convinced that in the writer's room, there was at least an hour-long discussion on whether or not they could call him like Milt or something like that. Speaking of people who are connected to this movie who are part of Big Rich Things, one of the producers and also the actor who plays Mr. LaBelle is a Vanderbilt. Wow. Yeah. What a get. Yeah. (laughs) Like, there's also a fantastic reference to Dominion, which works on multiple levels. I love it. Can't believe that in half an hour, I will be a part of the Ladomus Gaming Dynasty Empire? Uh, Dominion. We prefer Dominion. Dominion. Yeah. You get the vibe that the creators are definitely turbo nerds in the right way. Mm. But I also really like that they went from a gaming Dominion based on card games, board games, to Tony, the very clearly Republican patriarch of the family, buying sports teams. Like, that's such a good swerve into kind of the wrong direction, I think. Mm-hmm. Sure, sports is gaming, that makes sense, mm-hmm. but it's not the same sort of gaming as we have been before. Yeah. It's a very capitalistic, less fun gaming f- space. Mm. Also, I want to know what sports teams they own. <laughs> I'll come back to what Jackson had said earlier about in Babysitter. Think about the movie and the various ways that um, people die or things like that. And one thing I've seen people talk about with this movie and that I kind of agree with that I think Babysitter did better was Grace spends just a lot of the movie kind of just running around. Obviously, she's fleeing, but it's not really like a, all right, I'm going to get to the kitchen so I can escape. Okay, now I'm going to get to here. And at some point, she's just kind of, fuck it, I need to go here. And the babysitter, at least because it's broken up by people trying to kill him, mm-hmm. there are like tangible goals that he achieves. I gotta go hide somewhere. So he goes and he hides. Then she catches him. So now I gotta get out of here. Now Max is on my tail. This movie, she's just scurrying from <laughs> hither to there with no real reason, which kind of not bogs it down, but it feels the middle of this movie is okay. Yeah, <laughs> it, it feels a little bit aimless. And like she's also specifically That's punished for trying to be proactive. She manages to take one of the guns off of the wall and loads it with bullets. Like, ridiculously huge bullets. Like, (laughs) the size of a vibrator. I think it's like a virtually an elephant gun. (laughs) Yeah. But the bullets, they're just props. (laughs) The ammunition is display only. And she never really gets another weapon. So she just is kind of running around, trying to survive, getting captured by the butler. Escaping the butler, getting recaptured by the butler, killing yeah. the butler. I think part of it is that she's trying to get out of the house, then like you know, to the road and therefore to, to a car. Makes sense. But also the house has like grounds and there's a lot of her running through woods and fields. We don't really have to know like how far or near that is from the gate, the road, the house, that kind of thing. But see, even then, like those scenes I'm more fine with because the goal is anywhere but here. I'm fleeing the premises. I'm heading that away. When it's up until then, there's a lot of Alex says, all right, you got to get to the kitchens and I'll unlock the door. And you can get out. So she gets to the kitchen and then that doesn't pan out. So now she's just scurrying around the house until she manages to get outside. And then it seems like she has a plan. And that's kind of where the, it picks back up. She gets captured. Then she kills the guy. And then she gets retaken in the woods. And then we kind of go into the end of the movie where it's structured. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it is kind of just Grace running full stop. Like in the sentence. Like she doesn't really, not to anywhere, just kind of around. I will say during the fleeing by car, there's an amazing bit where she tries to call like the the not on star. Uh, non star. 
for help, and unfortunately, because the car is technically stolen, the guy shuts it down, and it's very funny that she's cussing out the poor guy, I don't know, Justin. Ma'am, it says here that the car was reported stolen. I'm sorry, but I have to shut it down. No, what? No, what the fuck? Are you fucking kidding me? It's company policy, ma'am. No, 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 please. Justin! Yeah, poor Justin. The real victim of the <laughs> Yeah, going off of the whole aimless thing, I think there's a scene that demonstrates it perfectly. Although they, it does get played for laps there, mm-hmm. but we have a few people in the, in the family talking about hunting down Grace. She could be anywhere. This mansion is huge. And then as soon as they end their conversation, she just walks right to the hallway <laughs> behind them. Mm-hmm. I think that's another reason that this film is difficult we don't have a good sense of the layout of the house because it's so huge Mm -hmm. we talked about clue clue by the end of the first act or halfway through the movie you do have a sense of how the rooms are arranged it's also though based off of a board game which most people are familiar with exactly Honestly, if they had played with the fact that the house was, like, labyrinthine and we don't know what the layout is, that could have made the aimlessness feel more like an intentional choice. Like, she's in a maze. She doesn't know how to get out. She doesn't know this house, but they do. One know what it would have been a great way to do it is if Alex is showing Grace all of their board game nostalgia stuff from the Earth early days, and he mentions, oh yeah, like the board to this game is actually based off of this very mansion, and then she goes back to steal it, so she has a map of the house, but it's a fucking board game. Yeah, that would have been cool. Like, for me, the, the aimlessness didn't work because it didn't feel like... It's like I'm trapped in the labyrinth with the Minotaur, and I'm yeah. getting hunted. Like, they know the house, and I don't. Like, that yeah. would have given it attention... At least then less aimless, more like... They didn't know what to do with the aimlessness, and they didn't even comment on it, so they just said nothing, and that was worse. Yeah. I think it would also help if she's kind of a bit lost in this house, but then also, like, the people who married into the family, so, like, Fitch or Charity are also a little bit confused. And so we have, like, maybe, like, a quick sequence or two of Charity, who's determined and specific, but also keeps, like, opening up. Nope, this is a bathroom. Uh, nope, I'm in the attic again somehow. That could be a really funny, like, bit for her. Mild complaint here. A few of the scenes, a little underlit, could use, like, a bit more lighting here i get why but it's a little underlit it's not terrible again it's not the levels of like suicide squad or bright yeah which are this podcast's (laughs) go-to of terrible lighting you're you're telling me hilariously ironically the movie bright is underlit (laughs) yes (laughs) wonderful i mean that is not the gravest of its sins but it It doesn't help yeah amazing absolutely amazing Uh, it's a good movie now, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Much like Suicide Squad, also a good movie. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> I mean, Bright did give us the uh, wonderful line, is I'm going to titty bar gunfight die. <laughs> <laughs> One last note that I have. Part of the, the fun of this movie is that Grace is pretty confident where the rest aren't. And I have the you know that there's an equal number of brain cells on each side here, which is why Grace does so well. Because at first, Alex, who is not on her side exactly, is helping her team, so he's using some of the brain cell distribution from that team for her. <laughs> That's the thing. Like interested in comparing the two, Grace doesn't really make the turn to fight back mm-hmm. like uh, Cole does. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing, the first time I saw it, I was kind of, oh, okay. Because I was waiting for her, okay, no, this time. Now now I'm hunting you. Yeah. Or whatever. And... Yeah, to, to kind of play around with the whole like most dangerous game sort of thing that mm-hmm. this film has going. I'm kind of okay with that, though, because I think most of us in this scenario would just keep running. We would not necessarily oh, have the skills to do that. And I'm wondering how much of that was intentional commentary on things you're next where... It's another, like, cult trying to kill the new bride, but the new bride they find out was, like, foreign Mossad or whatever. So, it's just, like, a bunch of dudes in animal masks getting murdered by this lady. Go check that out. 
It's fun. It is very rendering not esque, but maybe not deliciously self aware. I'm not too bothered by it. I do think it's interesting oh, that she like winds up just beating Andy McDowell over the head with a the, oh, the yeah. bail box. And ultimately, I'm not. Um, I'm not bothered either. It, it threw me the first time I saw it because I was expecting the most dangerous game turn where she starts fighting back. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even then, even in Babysitter, Cole doesn't really either. I mean, he kind of fights back in a more Home Alone style, as we, we've mentioned, but there is a point where he's just like, all right, fuck this, and he ramps a car into the front room to kill her. Yeah. And I think it works there because, like, that time it was personal. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we're winding down. Overall, I really enjoy both of these films. So who's the best girl? Cole <laughs> or Grace? <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think it's Grace. Grace is the Arthur. Okay. Uh, so Alex patently disagrees with you, but you use such a good argument because Cole uses the Arsler, he can't really start to fight you on it. Pretty much. I love it. I love it so much. I love to win through underhanded means. Uh, you are technically correct. Um, That's kind of correct. Okay, what about antagonist? B or Antaline? I think Antaline because B is fun, but also her, her motivations seem a little bit messy especially with the second film and also just the weirdness of her and cole it's this relationship that almost works but doesn't quite and ostensibly b isn't really i'll say the villain like the cult that runs around after him she's setting up all this other stuff it's only after they're all dead Mm -hmm. that he has to the big bad is the phrase he's he fights all the mini bosses and then he stops her up until she pulls a shotgun on him after max dies she's not really Mm -hmm. fighting him it's true. Whereas Aunt Helene is actively on the prowl the whole movie. It's fair. Mm-hmm. And there's something about her presence that just is so very over the top and makes sense with like kind of what we've learned about her over time with how she at first resisted the whole murder game, but then Luana regretting that she wasn't part of it. I think that's an interesting character choice that her willful, gleeful culpability in her evil works really well for me. I'm also very biased. They're both very good antagonists. <laughs> fair. Both these movies, I feel, are really great. I do think The Babysitter is more easily accessible right now because it's just on Netflix and so is the sequel. Mm-hmm. I think Ready or Not is get a digital copy, but I don't think it's necessarily streaming anywhere right now. Yeah, unfortunately. But also, I get it. It's kind of a slightly higher budget. Uh, I mean, it's also much more recent. It only came out last year. Yeah. So. Jeez. It feels like that movie's been out for five years. These were both great, and Samara Weaving is definitely part of the reason why they're both so great. She is fantastic in both in very different ways. Mm-hmm. Even though she's doing these two fairly similar films, her range is pretty impressive in them. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we're totally done here. Go go watch The Babysitter, go watch Ready or Not. Consider watching The Babysitter too. Call your Congress folk, tell them to uh, decriminalize sex work. And call Ghibli M, tell him, to, or them, or her, or Zer, to get with us and talk about what's wrong with Samara Weaving. Also, make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you catch your pods, so you can be aware of whenever our next episode goes live, which will be a double feature of Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to you. I'm chaining myself to the table now, so I get to be a part of that one also. (laughs) (laughs) Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Positive Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.